The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 200th episode of the Echo Chamber podcast. Um, this is Arun Sudharman, joined by Paul Holmes. How are you, Paul? I'm very good, thank you. Um, um, it's um, it, it, it's worth mentioning. This is also this month is also the 20th anniversary of the Holmes Report. Wow! It feels like those two things shouldn't be coincidental. 20, 220 at the same time, um, 20, but they are. 20, 2020, 20th anniversary in 2020 and the 200th yes. episode. There's some synchronicity there. There is. It's almost like we should rebrand. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's do that. Maybe we will. <laughs> Maybe we won't. Um, so anyway, <laughs> this is the 200th episode, but it's actually not. Um, I think we actually ended up, we've done more than 200 episodes, but we lost a few when we um, transitioned, to use an awful word, uh, from one podcast provider to another. Um, oh, so, okay. But officially, this is the 200th um, episode. Uh, and what's really interesting is that the first episode we did, as you might be aware, was an interview with... Harold Burson? Correct was an interview with Harold Burson. Um, he obviously uh, passed away last week, Friday, uh, at the age of ninety-eight. Um, it, it's difficult, I think, to put his impact on the global PR industry into words. Um, many people have tried. Many many people, I think, have 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 used the occasion really to talk about the impact they had, uh, sorry, the impact he had on their lives. And that was really a huge um, kind of lesson for me. I mean, it was something we all knew, but to see how many people he had kind of touched and impacted in the industry was um, quite remarkable. Uh, and I think your article, your In Memoriam tribute, um, it's probably the best uh, effort I've seen to really capture his impact on the industry uh, because it was, it was uh, manifold, really. There's no, there's no one way to look at it. He was, you know, not just a great person. He was a great boss. He was a great businessman, as well. Um, the much of the kind of discussion of Harold Burson's legacy in recent years has focused on just what an amazing person he is. Um, and part of me wonders if that's because maybe the caliber of leader in the PR industry uh, is not the same as it was. Um, in the past. But leaving that aside, I, I, I thought it might be useful to start um, by asking you, I mean, what does his legacy mean to you? Um, one, story that, one story that I didn't include in, um, in the In Memoriam, um, because it didn't come to me when I was writing it, for whatever reason, um, was we held our third or fourth awards dinner as a company. This was before the Holmes Report when we were still inside PR. 
um, at the United Nations Delegates Dining Hall. And between reserving the venue and holding the dinner, um, there was the first bomb attack on the World Trade Center in New York. So this would have been the very early 90s. And security around New York was stepped up at every major venue. And of course, the United Nations was was viewed as one. And so we arrived at the UN in the early evening to find out that several new layers of security had been put in place. And basically, everything that was metal from rings to earrings to necklaces was setting off um, the new security system and required a hand wand before you could go through. And again, this was 1991 before this was sort of a routine thing at airports, before it was a routine thing, um, you know, for, for travelers. And, 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 um, and so guests started to arrive at about 6.30, in the evening. And at 9.30 in the evening, the line was still very, very long to get into the dinner, hmm. um, which was supposed to have started two, two, two hours earlier. Um, and it was a giant, can I say clusterfuck on the podcast? I assume I can. Um, well, you just it was did. a giant, so. yes. <laughs> it was a giant clusterfuck. And Harold, um, was already into seventies, so his uh, his people asked us if we could move his lifetime achievement award, which was supposed to be the last award of the evening, to the beginning of the evening because he was feeling tired. I thought that was perfectly reasonable, so we moved Harold's um, lifetime achievement award to the beginning, and so he was the first person up on stage, other than me. I spent about ten minutes apologizing for how late everything had got. And then Harold came up on stage, and the mood in the room was, um, it, it was one of those things which could have gone either way. People were not happy. And, um, and Harold said, um, very dryly, he said, I want to thank you for this Lifetime Achievement Award, but those of you in the audience will understand that when I started queuing to get in here, it was actually an award for the most promising newcomer. <laughs> and there was a moment of silence, and then everybody laughed, and then the entire room was just fine, because everybody figured if Harold Burson, if Harold Burson could, could laugh about it and, and make a joke about it, then it was the least they could do. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I think that Harold saved our company that night, but he certainly saved our awards dinner. And, and again, it was in retrospect, so absolutely typical of his good grace and his charm and his humor and his all-round decency um, that, you know, I should, I should have expected. Um, and, you know, the, the great thing is that whoever you meet, if you meet somebody who's known Harold for more than a couple of years, they all have a story like that. They all have a story about, you know, how he went out of his way, how, how he diffused the situation, whether they're a client or a 
colleague or a competitor. Um, Hal just treated everybody the same. And, um, and and with that, you know, good grace and charm. And it, it's, it, it was sort of amazing to me. I, I don't want to single out any of his peers at the time. Um, but, you know, he stood head and shoulders above many of them. Um, not just as a professional and not just as a businessman, though both of those things were true. Um, but in terms of just sheer decency and charm, not everybody was like that. Um, and not everybody today is like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great lesson to me in terms of persuading me that, you know, nice guys didn't actually have to finish last, that you could build a tremendous business without compromising your, you know, basic decency. Mm. And, you know, I think, I, 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 yeah, I was very young at the time. I mean, I think back to that, I was still in my 20s um, when that incident occurred. Um, mm. I was probably 24 or 25 when I met him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the people I'd worked for and, and a lot of the people that I'd met in the business, um, it would have been easy to get very cynical about, you know, what, what, what you had to be in order to be a powerful individual. Mm-hmm. And Harold was the exact opposite of all of those things. He wasn't ruthless, um, particularly. He wasn't rude. He wasn't an elitist of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. In a way, he kind of represented the best um, of the industry, uh, you know, from, from, the, from, from everything you've said, from everything many people have said. How do you view his impact on the... Um, on the industry as a businessman, because, you know, the firm he built, particularly in, in, in the way that it not just became the biggest firm in, in America, but the biggest firm in the world, um, it was pioneering. Uh, and in a way, I guess, it probably pioneered the whole idea of a global PR agency. Yeah. Um, I, I think there are a couple of things to be said about that. I mean, the, the, the first is, um, to, to a certain extent, what Harold did in the sort of 70s and then after he got Y&R money at the end of the 70s, um, during the 80s, um, now looks like the logical way to build an international PR firm, right? We, mm-hmm. uh, everybody who's, who's followed in Harold's footsteps has essentially done it the same way. And we sort of think, well, yeah, that's how you do it. But I don't think it was by any means obvious how to do it when um, when Harold was doing it. Um, because PR is fundamentally different than, say, advertising when it comes to globalization, when it comes to internationalization. Mm. Um, you can still see the same ad with a different voiceover or a different soundtrack in multiple markets around the world. But you can't do a PR campaign that way. PR campaigns have to be localized. They require local people with local knowledge, talking to local newspapers, uh, talking to local employees. Um, and so what Harold did um, in, in building the, 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 you know, and people, people deride the sort of hub and spoke model of public relations. They deride the dots on the map model of Mm. of building out an agency. But the reality is that nobody has ever built a global PR agency any other way. 
right? Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to do that. And Harold figured it out. Um, by the time I met him, he was already in the process of replacing the expat Americans who ran every office at first mm-hmm. um, with local indigenous talent. Um, Bursa Marstella was the factory that produced PR talent in yeah. most of these markets. No question. Um, it, it was the first place that if you were a you know, a kid from, from Singapore who wanted to go into public relations um, or a kid from France who wanted to go into public relations or a kid from Spain who wanted to go to public relations that would train you up and give you the tools either to lead the Bursa Marstella office there or often to go off and start your own firm. And I mean, you and I, we meet people around the world um, who have thriving you know, 10, 15, 20, 25, $30 million PR firms who started out at Versa Marstella and learned their craft at Versa Marstella. And this was at a time when, you know, training was viewed as a a burden um, on the the agency. Um, And lots of firms did not have robust professional development programs and Versa Marstella did. Um, And it was, it was the, the place you went to recruit people from because you knew they'd be well-trained. But it was also the place everybody wanted to stay because they knew that they would grow and develop and learn. Um, and again, you know, you look back at that today and you think, well, sure, it's obvious that you should do that and invest in talent as an agency. But it wasn't obvious before Harold did it. Yeah, indeed. Um now he sold his agency, obviously. So first, it, it, he sold it to Wynar, and then I think Wynar sold to WPP. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, Wynar, yes, he sold it to Wynar, and Wynar was bought by WPP. Yes. Okay. And one of the things that I thought was interesting when we had him on the podcast for episode one, which was I think right at the beginning of 2013, we did ask him about public ownership. Um, because I was curious to see if he, if you know, how he felt about public ownership of PR firms, and I can't remember his exact words, uh, but he, you know, he certainly wasn't a fan. Um, is that a? Do you think that's an attitude that that he he'd had all along, or was this something that that had kind of uh, had developed as the years passed? I think, um, and. You know, his his memoir came out just a couple of years ago. And if you read the book, I think it's clear that um, that he recognized the trade off um, mm. that was inherent. And I, look, he wanted he wanted to build a global public relations firm and he needed funding to do that. It wasn't something he was going to be able to do out of cash flow, I think. Mm. Um, and so he accepted the trade off. And, you know, Harold was not somebody um, who would sit around and badmouth, you know, anybody that he worked with. No. Um, You know, I don't don't think I ever heard Harold say anything beyond a sort of non-committal grunt when I demeaned somebody. That that you know would necessarily give his give away how he felt about them. I mean, mm. um, 
and, and he was the same way with with the parent with the parent company, right? So he um, it publicly and on the record always respected um, the people that he worked with. Um, but I think he understood quite clearly. Um, you know, you you could pick this up in a number of different ways that you know. Bruce Marcello had had compromised the degree of its. Um, I, I the, the word that keeps coming into my head is integrity, but I don't mean that in terms of its ethics or its morals as mm. much as just its autonomy and its independence and its freedom to act. Mm. Um, right, and and um, and there, it was clear to me that. You know, for example, some of the CEOs that Burson had in the later years um, felt as if they were imposed on the organization rather than than being selected by the organization, right? Mm. And I think he saw that as as problematic. But um, you know, I I've, I've known enough people who have sold their agencies to big publicly traded entities to know that at least half of them, um, you know, wake, wake up 180 days of the year with some sort of regret about having done that. Hmm. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of compromises involved and Harold was, I mean, Harold went in with his eyes open, um, but I suspect that he still wondered about what would have happened hmm. without, you know, what, what Bruce Marcello would look like today um, without the compromises of public ownership. So the, his impact, I think, on the industry, certainly in terms, if we talk about the global PR industry, um, it's di difficult to think of anyone else who played such a huge role in its development. Yeah, um, he was, I, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, I, I said this, um, I said this to you in an, in an email afterwards. He was, he was, I think, clearly our greatest living PR man, mm. right? And I, we we haven't talked about we haven't talked about him as a PR man. No, I was going to come to that next. <laughs> he thought, you know, he thought deeply and um, and and um, broadly about our industry. Mm. Um, if there's sort of one. If there's sort of one regret I have about Harold is that he wasn't more of a showman, that he wasn't more forceful, that he didn't, you know, didn't occasionally get angry about stuff in public because he, he, what he, what he thought about the PR industry. Um, I mentioned in the, the in memoriam article the speech that that, that he delivered to um, the Institute for Public Relations Education. Yeah. Um, where you know he talked about he talked about public relations being about advising companies how to behave, not what to say. Yeah, and you know that's something that's something that we still um, we still see in in this yeah. business. He didn't he didn't see public relations as a communications discipline. Mm. He saw public relations as a management discipline. He yeah. saw the advice that he gave to companies on how to act. Um, as being much more important as any advice he could give them on what to say, and you know that's that's critical. I remember mm. a, 
I, I'm trying to remember the context of this, but, but a little while ago, I either wrote an article or gave a gave a speech, in which um, for about the hundredth time in my life, um, I railed against Milton Friedman and the idea that the only social responsibility of business is oh. to make a profit for its shareholders. And two days later, I got an email from Catherine Sullivan at mm -hmm. BCW with uh, an attachment of a speech that Harold had given in like 1975 or something, <laughs> where he basically made exactly the same point, except mm. he was much more polite and much more agreeable. And, you know, I, I, I have the tendency to think that Milton Friedman is both a moron and an incredibly damaging historical figure. And Harold just engaged with him as if, look, I think, I think you're wrong about this. And actually mm. business has all, and he was, you know, he was an early thinker and pioneer about corporate social responsibility and what it meant. Mm. And um, Carol Cohn, uh, her uh, blog on, on Cal Cohn on purpose, yep. and it has a wonderful tribute to Harold's mm -hmm. thinking about CSR because he was so far ahead mm. of the rest of us. And then you could see that as it played out in, for example, the Tylenol crisis. And the Tylenol crisis is another of those things. I've met, I don't know, 20 PR people who told me, who told me that they played a sort of central role in the decision to recall Tylenol. Um, and I know two or three of them were actually sort of there in the room. Harold never bragged about his role in that crisis at all. He was incredibly reticent about it. And yet, you know, I, it, it's impossible for me to believe that he wasn't there in the room telling um, Jim Burke at, at, at um, J and J to do the right thing. I mean, I mm. don't know that he necessarily needed telling, but I'm mm. sure that Harold was a voice for the right thing mm. in in that situation because you know everything that he said about public relations um, was about the need to be ethical and responsible and to act with integrity. Yeah. Why do you think it is um, that despite you know, Harold's uh, d definition of public relations as, as being more about behavior than communication, you know, about being, you know, more about reality than rhetoric. And, you know, so, so many senior leaders of the industry came from Burson. Despite all of that, despite the efforts of people like yourself, we're still in a situation today where public relations is, you know, is defined largely in terms of, of communications and and so forth. Are these just the, the market realities that, that couldn't be contended with? <laughs> clients, clients would much rather pay you, you know, whatever it is these days, $750 an hour to spin whatever it is they want to do, mm. then take your advice and make substantial and expensive changes to their business. Um, yeah, the market, the market realities are the market realities. Mm. And, um, and, and I think often, um, saying the right thing is good enough. Mm. Yeah. But, sure. uh, yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to turn a, a 
a tribute to Harold into me getting up on a hobby horse that I've been riding for 30 years without mm. any notable progress. Um, you, you talked about, um, you know, how Harold was a big advocate for ethical practice. Um, you know, Bursa Marcella had, had clients that perhaps inhabited some of those gray areas. Did you ever see any tension between, you know, his own personal views and, and the work the firm did? Um, you know, again, uh, uh, Harold, Harold and I, um, often arrived at the same place in terms of our thinking by, by sort of different routes. Um, I would say something that I thought um, was sort of this amazing revelation that I'd had um, about, you know, how, how PR firms should operate or what, you know, what good practice looked like or whatever. And I, I, having, having sort of gone around the industry telling people how clever I was, um, I'd, I'd sit down with Harold and do exactly the same thing. And then Harold would pull out something from 20 years earlier mm. where he'd been doing this, you know, forever. And just, as I say, not, not yelling about it or screaming about it or telling everybody how brilliant it was. And, and so Harold and I, had, I think, arrived at the same place, which was that you could do good work for bad clients. Mm. Um, I, one of my first interactions with Bursa Marsteller was with a guy who was running their, um, their UK operations when I got into the PR business in, I think he's probably running Europe actually, when I got into the PR business in 85. And his name was Mike Horton. Mm -hmm. um, he later died tragically. He was um, stabbed to death in a hotel room in London um, by his secretary's husband. Um, and, um, and, and Mike was in huge, huge trouble, well, huge trouble. Um, he just, when I met him, he just dealt with a reporter from Time Out. This is how long ago it was, Time Out had reporters, um, who uh, had, um, had been doing an expose on Bursa Marstella's work for the military hunter in Argentina, which mm -hmm. was understandably controversial. Um, but I sat down with, with Mike and we talked about it. And the work, the work was almost entirely what I've just advised, it, what I've just talked about, rather. It was advising the military hunter to behave differently. Mm. Not, it wasn't coming out to, to Europe and saying, actually, all of those disappearances in Argentina are either, you know, made up or exaggerated or, um, you know, a good thing because those people were all terrorists and, and, and revolutionaries. It was advising the government of Argentina to be better. Hmm. And, you know, I, look, there are times, I think, when everybody convinces themselves that they're doing that and they're, they're not doing it quite as much as they might have. And I'm sure that was true um, in many instances. Um, for for Bursa Marcel, you don't always live up to, to the ideals. Um, and sometimes the client doesn't, flat out doesn't take your advice and you keep getting paid anyway, hoping that they will. Um, but by and large, I think Harold understood um, that you know, the clients that needed good public relations advice the most were often 
the clients who, when he came into contact with them, were doing things the worst. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think most clients um, became better as a result of, of his advice, certainly, um, and hopefully of the firm's advice too. But I think, you know, I, I, again, I think I'm not, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to portray Harold as a saint because I think that actually sort of doesn't, doesn't really do justice to yes, uh, any complex human being. For example, you know, it occurred to me, I was writing that list of all the people that was sort of dotted around the 13th floor of mm. Bursa Marstella when I went to, when I went to visit um, in 1987. And, you know, looking at it, it was like it, it, it was an incredible place because it, it, it's as if today you or as if two years ago you had um, Alan Parker and Gershon Kext and Jim Abernathy and George Saad all on one floor of one agency in one city. I mean, it was such an all-star lineup, but it was all-star lineup of white men hmm. right and and but i i you know i used to, i started my in memoriam by saying i used to tell harold that when i went around the world if i went to singapore and sat in a room with with 10 pr people i'd be able to pick out the person person hmm. yeah. um within within you know, 20 minutes of conversation based on what they say but honestly it was also based on the fact that they would have been a white man Mm, um, sure. The person, uh, and and I think it took an inordinately long time before um, women at Burson um, were um, you know were on a par with and taken as seriously as men. And it was a very you know, it was a very corporate, very B to B, and and as a result of that very masculine organization for much longer than it should have been. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. you couldn't, you know, you couldn't avoid that, that reality. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, a lot of those people who went on to, um, to start their own agencies or to develop their careers else did so elsewhere. It's mm. true. And increasingly so, of course, um, in the last two decades, we saw the rise of a number of other networks, um, you know, that, that in, in, in certainly in terms of, of revenues, you know, eventually overtook Bursa Marstella. Were they all just playing from the same playbook that Harold had developed? Um, I think, I think probably, uh, so, when I when I started writing about public relations, there were two firms that were clearly both the biggest and the best, and that was Bursa Marstella and Hill and Alpen. Mm -hmm. um, Bursa Marstella has, um, I think, been more consistently at the top of the PR industry um, in the time that I've been writing about it um, of those two. Um, but those were the two. And then um, sometime probably in the 90s, they were overtaken uh, in terms of their reputation um, by Fleischmann Hillard and Ketchum. And 
I think if you sat down with the people who ran Fleischmann Hillard, John Graham, um, if you sat down with the people who ran Ketchum, basically at the, the time, Dave Drobis and Ray Kotcher, um, they would all acknowledge a debt to Burson Marstello and to Harold specifically um, in terms of you know, the, the way in which they ran their businesses. Um, I think in the last decade, those firms have been replaced by Edelman and Weber Shenwick mm. um, as the sort of two, not just the two biggest PR firms in the world, um, but the two best run. Um, and I think that coincided with a shift in what great PR firms were about. Hmm. Interesting. Um, it, it, in that, um, you know, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, Bursa Marcello was a corporate B2B firm. And actually, I sat down with um, one of Harold's successors um, you know, early in the dot-com Boom. And and he uh, he insisted that Burson would get out of the um, consumer business entirely. They'd leave it to Conan Wolf because you couldn't make money on consumers. The only people who wanted sort of high end strategic advice were the corporate crisis, financial communications, public affairs people, and that shifted dramatically um, as digital and social became a huge part of our business. And I don't think you'd find anybody, well, I think I think you'll find boutique firms like Brunswick and um, Text and Apco and you know those guys, Finsbury, um, who are making a lot of money giving high-end strategic corporate advice. Um, but if you want to be a big global public relations firm, you better be great at marketing. Mm. Um, you better be great at consumer. And, um, that's something that you know Weber and um, Edelman figured out a long time before some of their competitors did. Um, and yeah. and, and um, you know, I think um, I think the game changed at that point. You know, you'd had this sort of two-dimensional matrix of we need people who are great at um, the practice area. They they really know employee comms. They really know public affairs. They really know. Um, financial communications and we need people who understand the energy sector and the financial sector and the healthcare sector and the technology sector and that was fine but then the dot-com revolution imposed another layer on top of that and you know we know we need people who know graphics or we need people who know video and we need people who know animation and we need people who know all those other things and that got imposed on top and that I think shifted um, the business model, the tr training and professional development model, and all of that, and and that was a different level level of complexity um, mm -hmm. than the industry was dealing with in the seventies and eighties when Harold was defining it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, I I think this generation probably um, has has had to find new new ways of managing that are perhaps a little bit different. Mm, indeed. Well, it was a sad day, I think, for the global industry, the global PR industry. Um, yes. The, the, the loss of Harold Burson. I, I think clearly we will not see his like. Um, again, I, I think that was, in, in fact, a point you made. Um, yeah, I, I, just, I just think there'll, there'll be no, you know, 
he's he was the pioneer. He was the guy who did it first. You there's only one of those, yeah. right? In the same way that there's only one Neil Armstrong. I mean, I yeah, you know, we can start sending people to the moon tomorrow, mm-hmm. but the reality is that the first person there. Yeah, but that whole literally. generation of of entrepreneurs, founders, um, Al Golan, Dan Edelman, Harold Burson. Um, I'm sure you have other names you can throw yeah, in I mean, there. The, 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 one, um, the one that's still out there is David Finn. Um, mm, okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the slightly smaller scale, slightly different story, but, you know, mm. but that, but yeah, that generation of people who started building up their PR firms um, in the, you know, in the, in the sort of 60s and 70s and, and early 80s is um yeah more or less gone Mm. okay well paul thank you very much um for being on uh our 200th episode um i'll see you on the it's a pleasure i'll see you perhaps on the 300th maybe let's see maybe we'll get you back before then (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't know why you know you you start to think about your own mortality. Oh no, no, come on. <laughs> come on, you've got you still got a long way to go and indeed a lot of work to do, which I'll talk hey, to you when about. When I when I first met Harold. When I first met Harold, so I would have been I must have been twenty three because it was nineteen eighty five. I must have been twenty three when I met Harold. I must have been the most obnoxious kid he'd met in forever. I, I yeah. sure he couldn't believe that he had to deal with somebody somebody like me but at that time i was utterly convinced that i wasn't going to live to be 40 so i'm already years ahead of where i thought i'd be yeah you're you're yeah you're playing with house money now paul absolutely Um, (laughs) thank you very much thank you all for listening we'll be back soon you've been listening to the echo chamber brought to you by the homes report and produced by marketeers Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.